If you like sports talk with absolutely no sports talk, then welcome to the latest episode of the Just Not Sports podcast. This is the show where a couple guys who work in sports talk to the people who play and cover sports about anything and everything they like, just not sports. On today's show, we'll talk to longtime NFL punter Chris Cluey about his career as a writer, and we'll find out if we have what it takes to be considered a beautiful and unique sparkle pony. And we'll also do a battle of the sports dads to see who reigns supreme, P. Diddy or Master P. I am your co-host, Brad Burke. I'm a sports marketer in Chicago, and joining me is a leading sports media strategist who's worked for the University of Colorado, the Green Bay Packers, and many global sports brands. On the phone this week, it's Adam Willard. Adam, where are you, buddy? Hi, Brad. I am in an office. Well, that sounds mysterious and creepy. I've uh, been called both of those things. <laughs> right. Yeah, no, I, I, by me many times and my family. Let's start this week, Adam, with a thank you, a big thank you to anyone and everyone who listened to the shows that we put up the first two weeks. Uh, Great interviews, in our opinion, fun interviews, I guess I should say, not great, with Chad Brown, former NFL player about snakes, with Shea Serrano from ESPN about his new book on rap. We got a ton of nice notes, uh, lots of action on our SoundCloud and on iTunes with people downloading the show and telling us about it. So if you did that, if you're one of those people, thank you very much. Thank you for dealing with our Facebook posts, telling you about our, our podcasting venture. And Adam, uh, what's the most, uh, I guess you would say, what's the most interesting thing someone told you about the show? Um, that they learned a lot about snakes. Um, I would also say that the most common thing I heard was, I think it's really good. I'm biased, but I think it's really good. So, thanks. <laughs> Adam, the the most common thing that I heard was that your voice is like butter melting on a stack of pancakes. I don't know how to even respond to that except to say thank you. I really appreciate the compliment. You're a professional, man. Just to clarify, you have done voice work in the past. Yeah, yeah, yes, I do a voiceover spot um, for profit once every five years. So, yes, I guess that makes me a professional. I mean... I also do a lot of free work for clients and internal highlight reels that I don't get paid for. So uh, we can talk to that. We can talk about that. Once we have agents, uh, that's all going to change. So you're essentially the master P of professional voice work, If he was, what he was to the NBA. <laughs> oh, oh, I was hoping you'd go there. Uh, no, much better than master P, and we'll explain why soon. Well, we got a packed show today, plenty to talk about, more Master P coming up. But first, let's get in right to our first guest to talk to Chris Cluey, former NFL punter, about his very varied life outside of sports. Uh, Just so everyone knows, Adam is on the phone for the first part of this, but had to drop off for a conflict. So it's not me just talking over him and steamrolling him just because he's on the phone. I swear I would never steamroll you, Adam. You are so much bigger than me and could destroy me in two seconds. So we'll take a quick break, come back with Chris Cluey. The hardest part about introducing our guest today is figuring out just how to introduce him exactly. 
Chris Cluey is known by many NFL fans as a standout punter who also dabbled in several off-the-field activities. But he's a true renaissance man. He's an author, he's a gamer, he's a musician, and he's a leading social advocate who's not afraid to challenge the status quo in the NFL or far, far beyond. And perhaps most importantly, his pumpkin carving game is on point. Go to his Twitter, at Chris Warcraft, scroll back to Halloween. Trust me, it's worth it. We thought the best conduit into Chris's mind is his writing. His career includes multiple books, such as Beautiful, Unique, Sparkle Ponies, a series of humorous essays, as well as the new sci-fi fantasy novel Prime, a Genesis series event. Today we're going to talk to Chris about his brash and ballsy style, his writing process, and even the way that he writes fan fiction for video games, which he does if you just know where to look for them. So Chris, welcome to the show. My first question, have you written anything today? And if not, what is your excuse? <laughs> um, I haven't written anything today yet because I was playing some Fallout 4. So um, you know, i got got to make sure my settlement is happy that people are, are taken care of. Um, but I am planning on writing later. Uh, I'm going to be working on a uh, short story essay thing that will be in um, a sci-fi uh, magazine, I think in either January or February. How many different projects are you working on at any given time? A lot. <laughs> <laughs> I tend to... I tend to bounce back and forth between lots of different things because, um, like, usually if um, I'll focus on something for a while until I feel like I kind of either hit a block or, you know, I just want to move on to something else, and then I'll go work on something else for a while, and then once I'm done with that other thing, then I usually have some new ideas for the previous thing I was working on. And uh, I find it it works fairly well for me, especially for, like, longer-term projects. Uh, Shorter stuff like essays and stuff, I can usually pound those out in about a couple hours or so. As a former NFL punter, uh, and I, I mean this with all due respect, but you had a little bit more time uh, during practice than some of the other players. Your sessions are a little bit different from practice, and intentionally so. Mm-hmm. Um, did you find yourself coming up with ideas while standing on a practice field and then going back to the locker room to write them down? How much of that downtime during the practice day or just – um, the how mundane an NFL schedule can be. Did that allow for uh, creativity on your part? Oh, definitely. I mean, there there's a lot of downtime, especially as a punter, because um, before practice, like when guys are having meetings and stuff, really we only have special teams meetings for about like an hour or so, and then you have your position meetings, which for us last maybe like 10 or 15 minutes. So then you, you have about two and a half, three hours of really not a whole lot going on. Um, then practice practice itself, you have to be out there for the entirety of practice, which is about two and a half hours, because um, special teams is before the regular practice. But once you're done with special teams, then you're done. So that's another like hour and 45 minutes where you're not doing anything. So there were quite a few times where, you know, I'd be I'd be either BSing with the my long snapper and kicker, or, you know, I'd be just be kind of zoning out, watching practice, thinking things over in my head, like, okay, I think this seems like a good idea. How do I want to approach this if I'm going to write about it? You know, just anything to keep myself occupied because uh, the days can get long if um, if you don't have anything to do. Yeah, you mentioned the days getting long. Every writer that I've ever spoken to or even the ones who kind of talk openly about it, I, I feel like they have a preferred either time of writing or, or setting or process of writing. So if you could make, I guess if you could make up like your perfect scenario, do you, do you have like an ideal place and setting for you to maximize creativity or do you vary around a little bit more 
Uh, well, the ideal setting would probably be a super comfortable couch, an endless supply of white Russians, and no children around me. So that, <laughs> I think that I would be my most productive in, in that setting. But uh, no, with, with two young kids, I mean, it's basically I got to find time when and where I can, uh, especially since I'm the stay-at-home dad now. Uh, my, my wife works as a uh, uh, therapist at a youth shelter near our house. So I'm the one in charge of, you know, kind of picking them up from school, taking them to school, making sure they're fed, uh, making sure they do their homework, stuff like that. So it's it's basically if I can grab like a half hour here, an hour there, and and work on stuff. Um, that's kind of like during the day, and then uh, at night tends to be a bit more productive, just because if I if I really feel like I'm in the writing mood, I can be like, okay, my wife is now here, she can take care of the kids, and I can get like an hour and a half, two hours to just kind of sit down and focus solely on on writing. Yeah, but it's also productive because you got the white Russians flowing, right? Yeah, exactly like that. <laughs> what, what is it? Uh, Hemingway, you know, write drunk, edit sober. That's uh, very, very good advice. Never, never edit drunk. That's bad. <laughs> Does the the drinking go with every type of writing, or is it better with fan fiction <laughs> as opposed to editorial? Um, it, it depends. I mean, there's you know, and I, I'm not advocating that every writer should get hammered when they write. Like that's obviously not good for your liver, and probably won't be good for your writing as well. But there is something to be said where sometimes, you know, if you feel like you're blocked, if you feel like you're just, you've been beating your head against this problem over and over and you can't think of something, well, try and change the way you think for a little bit and then look at it. And yeah, nine times out of 10, you're going to come up with a solution that's worse than the problem you're facing. But, you know, every so often it'll be like, whoa, I wrote that down last night. And now that I'm looking at it sober, either it makes sense or I can see what I was thinking of. And now I have a new direction to go in. So I mean, there's there's nothing wrong with it, but everything in moderation. I mean, don't don't become an alcoholic just because you think that's going to make you a better writer. And just to be clear, there certainly are other ways, whether it's a walk outside or push-ups or maybe a game of Fallout 4. Yeah, first of all, I think you guys are are being too, uh, or Adam especially is like doing a public service announcement, like go take a walk. I mean, you give me a few Jack and Cokes, I'm going to be prolific. I can get (laughs) get stuff done. I... I am just re-reciting what I learned in D.A.R.E. as a kid, like presenting <laughs> an alternative activity. Right. Right. The, the red bracelet. you gotta got to keep in mind. <laughs> Correct. Chris, have you always been able to express yourself both verbally and, and via writing? And, and have you, do you feel you've rubbed off maybe on other players and allowing them to express themselves as well? Um, I would hope so. I mean, it's, like, I don't think I ever set out to do that, but, you know, if by me saying stuff, by me writing about stuff, you know, other players feel that they can now be themselves and, you know, say what they want to say, I, I think that that's probably a good thing because um, I feel sports in general is entirely too corporate these days, and it's basically shut up, play your sport, and forget that you're a human being, which I don't think is good on a societal level. Um, but, yeah, for, for me personally, it's always been something where, um, I read a lot as a kid. I've always loved reading, um, mainly sci-fi fantasy, but a lot of science fiction and fantasy books take uh, like current political events or past political events as the basis for their story. So you can actually learn a lot without even knowing that you're learning. Um, and then later on, if you're like, oh, I want to figure out what's the background of those stories, then you start realizing, okay, you know, these are stories that have happened before. These are human stories. You know, This isn't just all made up. And so um, I, I think that helped a lot. And then um, part of it, too, is just, wanting to live in a world that, you know, is is the type of world I want to live in. I mean, one where everyone is treated fairly and treated equally, because if I want to be treated equally and fairly, then I have to ensure that everyone else has that same opportunity or else it doesn't work. 
Yeah, I mean, Chris, you've we got to commend you because number one, you've been as outspoken a member of the sports community that has ever existed, especially you know when you were still playing and you were challenging the status quo. I, I'm, you know, I know you're very you're very active on Twitter. Um, you know, you you wrote for outlets like Deadspin that are um, you know part of solid communities of of readers, and so I know interaction with people who are reading your work is is probably something that's second nature to you. What is the interaction like when you're writing a piece of journalism or an opinion piece for a, on a contemporary subject in this new media environment? Like, what kinds of stuff do you hear? I'm sure there's a mix of that was really good, Chris, and then just utter hate speak trash that you can't even like <laughs> process. Yeah, usually it's a pretty solid mix between that was awesome, we loved it, and F off a-hole, we never want to hear from you again. So <laughs> right. I figure if, if I'm not pissing anybody off, then I'm probably not writing something that's up to my standards, because if you are going to address any sort of serious societal problem, then you're, by necessity, you're going to be addressing the vested interests. You're going to be, you know, addressing the status quo and trying to change that. And if you're not making them upset, then they're not, you know, they're not fearing that change. They don't think you've done anything to affect any change. So I, it's actually a good sign, um, or at least I consider it a good sign, when, you know, when I write a piece and I see the usual reactionary, you know, frothing at the mouth about it, because it's like, okay, good, you guys realize that I'm saying something that you don't want other people to hear, which is exactly why I want to say it, because people do need to hear it, and people do need to understand that, you know, we, we live in a society that actions do have consequences. And if we don't ensure fairness and equality for everyone, well, that's how civilizations crumble. It, it leads to this buildup of pressure where one group wants something that another group won't let them have, and that leads to conflict, and it leads to violence, and then that leads to collapse of empires. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a very persistent historical trend. Chris, I'm going to ask you uh, uh I don't know that it's controversial, but um, there are uh, a lot of athletes who communicate via uh, a ghostwriter, and I won't name any particular sites, but as someone who who values the ability of the word and to, and to express themselves in the way that you do, um, does that cheapen communication from a player at all by having someone taking their words and, and interpreting it and putting it into a piece that isn't truly in their voice? Um, I, I think that's one where, again, context is important. And what matters is what's the message that's being conveyed and what is the athlete trying to do with the message. So, you know, for example, if it's a piece where, like, someone's talking about the, you know, nano bubbles, for example, or they want to say, you know, hey, this miracle health solution, this is what got me to be my best, and they're using a ghostwriter for that, so, you know, it comes off polished and clean. It's like, well, what are you really trying to say? Or if they're trying to do, like, a comeback story from, you know, some horrible incident like domestic violence or something like that, where it it's clear, reading between the lines, that it's more a PR push that is trying to repair image versus any sort of actual sense of remorse or regret, then I think, yeah, in that case, it really does cheapen the athlete's image because people can see through that kind of stuff. And people can see that, okay... You're just kind of, you're, you're trying to play the game. You know, you're trying to be what you think people want you to be instead of actually looking at your, your motivations and your actions and saying, is this the human being that I want to be? Um, so I, I think in that sense, yeah, ghostwriting is kind of a, a scourge on the athletic writing field. Uh, however, there are also guys who, you know, just may not necessarily know how to 
put their message out in the way they want, but they really want to make themselves heard, and they know that someone else could say it better. In that case, I think ghostwriting is perfectly fine. Like, you know, if, if you have someone who wants to stand up for a cause like, um, like Black Lives Matter or something like that, and they know that, okay, I may not be able to say this exactly the way I want to say it, but I know someone else can, then, yeah, that's great, because then the athlete is getting his or her voice out. You know, they are talking on, on something that matters, and people will look at it and not just dismiss it because, you know, it, it doesn't flow the way they're, they're used to seeing sentence structure or paragraphs. In the last year, is there a piece you've seen from a fellow athlete or even a coach that really stood out to you as impactful, thoughtful, great writing? Um, I think the ones that actually have, have really kind of stood out to me weren't even pieces. They've been more... Um, Comments made uh, after games and in like uh, uh, press conferences and stuff. Like I know, um, like Aaron Rodgers, for example, very, very recently with the whole, you know, someone screamed out "Muslims suck" during the, the Packers game this past weekend, and Aaron Rodgers addressed it after the game and said, you know, look, that's not, you know, that's not how we should be acting in society, and, and he did it in a very thoughtful and reasoned manner. And I mean, stuff like that is fantastic because it's going to get written down anyways. I mean, it's, it's as good as if he wrote it because everyone's going to cover it. And then, um, you know, the case when uh, I think it was Richard Sherman and one of his teammates were um, were discussing uh, Ferguson, uh, I think it was like five or six months ago, and they were doing it over Twitter. And it was this very respectful exchange of ideas about, you know, hey, this is why this matters. This is why, you know, you should care about this. And, you know, here's why I believe that this tactic of protest works. And, you know, here's why I believe that this tactic of protest works. And so stuff like that, I mean, it's, it's allowing people to see athletes as human beings you know it's not just the the name on the back of the jersey or you know the helmet or the jersey itself it's no there, there's an actual human being underneath that and just like human other human beings you can be very complex and, and believe in a whole bunch of different stuff and you know be intelligent about it have you ever considered a role as you're talking to a couple of pr guys have you ever considered a role or would you have any interest in um really teaching athletes how to how to speak in their own voice? <laughs> well, I think depends on the uh, voice. I'm sure. I'm sure that's, right. that's a consideration. Yeah. Well, so so the other problem too is that um, I I like to be unflinchingly honest, and the first thing I would tell them is that look, I will teach you to speak in your in your own voice, but the problem is that it will most likely get you fired because the. NFL or the MLB or the NHL, they don't want you to speak in your voice. They want you to speak in the league's voice, which, again, is why you don't really see many athletes speaking out because they know, hey, I'm here to play my sport. And if I do anything that jeopardizes that, because there are so many other people that want this job, the team is most likely going to get rid of me, you know, unless I'm one of those once-in-generational transcendent talents. The, the team will get rid of me and find someone else, which, again, makes it very hard to speak out on stuff because you know you're, you're risking your livelihood, and it's not a job you can get anywhere else. Chris, I want to go back to your process a little bit and read a passage from Beautiful Unique Sparkle Ponies, which I just I found very compelling. So you say, I wish I could accurately describe how difficult it is to get thoughts from my head onto the screen in front of me when it comes to certain ideas. The best way I can describe it is that it's like trying to wrestle a fog bank into a condensed ball. I'm constantly trying to corral and define the edges in order to create a recognizable shape, and it fights back at every turn. I find that a very relatable yet profound description of, of how difficult it is to take 
ideas that are floating a mile a minute in a, in a head that's clearly as active as yours and get them onto the page. And I'm wondering, as you develop as a writer, as you write more, is that process becoming easier? Or in the book, you kind of almost say, like, just surrender to it and, and shape something truly unique and don't worry so much about um, how you're getting to that point. Yeah, it, it, well, the first thing is it really depends on, on the idea. Like, for example, um, you know, if I'm working on, uh, like, the, one of the science fiction books I'm working on right now, you know, dealing with stuff like how does a, how does a civilization interact with itself when you have faster-than-light travel? Like, what, what does that mean for the society itself? What does that mean for the people inside that? How do they deal with each other? Things like that where you're, you're trying to bring together all these other ideas that make that up and make it relatable to, you know, to our own society where stuff like we're dealing with the idea of constant surveillance of, you know, what, what does it mean to be constantly online, having the majority of your persona visible to other people, not necessarily physically, but per, but digitally. And so something like that, like that's where it's, that that's definitely the fog bank. Like, <laughs> like I'm really, right. you're really trying to, to find how I can sort of distill that down in a way that doesn't take 30 pages you know, to describe, because that, that's, that's the tough part, is, is making it concise enough to where someone can look at it and say, I get what you were going for, and I understand. And because, you know, if, if it's an Ayn Rand 400-page monologue, no one wants to read that. Like, that, that's bad writing. Right. <laughs> no one should ever do that. Um, but yeah, and, but if, if it's something uh, a little, you know, more simpler, like if it's a, a very concrete idea that for lack of a better word, that, that the zeitgeist is already embracing. So, you know, something like um, like same-sex rights. Like, that's something that, as a society, if I talk about that, there's a, a whole host of underlying assumptions and conclusions that people will automatically draw without me having to say anything. Or just by putting in, like, one or two key phrases, they'll know what I'm referring to. So something like that is much easier to pin down because you, you almost have this background information that you know people will be cognizant of. So it, it, it really does depend on the idea that you're trying to, to encompass. And also just, you know, how one thing I always try and keep in mind is how, you know, how I think about something may not necessarily be how someone else thinks about something. Like, you know, it's, it's the age-old question is, is the color green that I see the same color green that you see? And that's not always necessarily the case. I love a good media beef, and I can't wait to, um, I, I can't wait for the headlines saying that, uh, you know, Chris Cluey throws down shots fired against the rotting corpse of Ayn Rand. <laughs> oh man, I I think I have a, uh, a section in Sparkle Pony about Ayn Rand. It's uh, yeah, I'm not not really a fan because she got really close to a good idea, but the problem is she forgot empathy, and um, without that, you're basically just a sociopath. <laughs> yeah, I loved that chapter actually, and I wanted to ask you. How much could you talk about, you know, I think you open that chapter by saying I forced myself to read, um, you know, to read, you know, to read Ayn Rand. And I'm wondering how much benefit do you get from allowing yourself to be exposed to the writing that you know you're not going to agree with? And I say that knowing that we live in an age where it's easier than ever to filter out and to create little reading lists and RSS feeds that only have your viewpoint. So do you do you actually try as a writer to cultivate you know, vastly different ideas than your own just to see if there's something to be learned, either stylistically or ideologically? Yeah, so I'll, I'll never not read something just because of the ideological background of the person. Um, 
I'll generally not read it because it's either badly written or just doesn't make sense. Right. But there is definitely, you know, you, you should definitely be challenging yourself by looking at what other people believe, looking what other people think about it, because if you don't, if you're not familiar with, you know, with what other people um, think about the world, well, then you'll never be able to argue against them appropriately. Right. <laughs> you don't understand where they're coming from. I mean, if nothing else, for research purposes, you need to know, okay, why why does someone believe this? Why does someone espouse this view? So that way, when you're when you're marshalling your arguments, when you're looking for facts and logic to back up the point you're trying to make, you can point to all those things and cut off their arguments at the knees before they even begin. Right. I mean, you you talk very authoritatively about world issues, and I think in anyone who's read your your work knows you're a thoughtful guy that you you clearly put in the time to speak um, knowledgeably about subjects. I'm also like, how many times did you get like a count? Do you hear the first counter to your arguments? Are like, well, what do you know? You're a you're an NFL player. You're not you're not even real NFL player. You're a punter. You know, like how much do you hear that? And and how did you? How frustrating was it to try try to have to counter what are very well reasoned arguments coming from someone who just happens to make their living from the athletic community that is known for right or wrong for being populated by jocks, if you will. Right. That's well. And the funny thing is, I've started getting a lot less of those lately. Uh, yeah. <laughs> that people are are learning, or apparent, or I'm either no longer playing football, so they can't use it anymore. Right. But uh, one one of the things I would do though is that I would turn it right back around on them and say, you know, look, the by you saying that, you're essentially distilling me down to the job that I do to make money. You're saying that's all I can be, and that's all that I should be, and that goes directly to the point that if all you view a person is as is this one thing, then you're ignoring the fact that human beings are complex, that human beings need very many different things. And so if that's your mindset, you're contributing to the problem because you can't empathize with someone else. You don't see them as another person. You just see them as an object because it's easier to keep it track of them in your brain that way. And you should probably fix that. <laughs> right. And, you know, again, and these are clearly weighty topics that so we're talking about, you know, online hate and, and the, you know, the views of, uh, or the ways that people kind of express that hate. So after, especially after Sparkle Ponies and a lot of your, you know, as a, as an athlete, as a current athlete, like writing so candidly about controversial topics in and around the sports world, was it refreshing, you know, this year when you published Prime, um, you know, your, uh, you know, your fiction book to get into a genre where it's like, hey, you know, you're not, necessarily making a referendum on me the person or my political views you're just reading my this world i'm creating and you're you know you're reacting to that was it was that a like kind of a breath of fresh air coming off all of the pol like the polarizing types of work that you've done in other mediums well see, so so that's the really fun part is that like with science fiction and fantasy you can still put in those polarizing political stuff but you can be a lot more subtle about it, and people think, oh, I'm reading this fantastic adventure story. I'm reading, you know, this cool thing about aliens and this moon, and then there's stuff blowing up. And what they don't realize is that, okay, what, what are the underlying structures that are in place there? You know, what, what are the things that are being said by how the characters interact with each other? What the characters take for granted? You know, the environments that they operate in. So, like, like for example, in Prime, the, the backdrop of Prime itself is this monolithic entity that, you know, called government that essentially controls the political sphere of the entirety of humanity. 
And so what does that mean for humanity? Does that mean that things are utopic and happy? Generally doesn't. And, you know, that again, that's something that the reader may not necessarily pick up right away, but it's still there, and it still influences, you know, kind of how they view that world. And then some people who will read that will say, you know what, that reminds me of something in our world. That reminds me, say, of NSA surveillance. That reminds me of, you know, what happens when uh, bureaucratic organizations have access to information that others don't have access to, stuff like that. And so uh, that's one of the reasons why I actually really like writing sci-fi and and fantasy-type stuff is because you can still address those same issues, but you can also tell a really awesome story, too. (laughs) Right. We have some pretty cool fight scenes and, and, you know, some crazy stuff happening. uh, There's nothing that says you can't be educated and also be entertained at the same time. Yeah, and you co-authored Prime. So what's the change in process when you're writing a book as a tandem as opposed to it's just you're the dictator of your own thoughts and setting and world? So it, it, was, it was actually um, great because what it was, so my, my good friend Andy, um, he's, his day job is he's the executive editor at Game Informer, and uh, yep. we, obviously we both love video games like that. that that's kind of how we first met, and then um, we were, you know, hung out, played video games, and so the the idea for Prime came when we were we were seeing some other movie um, and we sort of started talking about you know what would be a cool science fiction universe for for this idea and we started bouncing ideas back and forth and then we're like after about twenty minutes we we said to each other why don't we just write this like we should actually write this as a book right and so um, co-authoring was cool in that essentially what we did is um, having someone else to bounce ideas off of and and to critique your own ideas I found made my writing a lot stronger because. Like I said earlier, I already know all the things that I can do well. Like, I know what my writing style is going to be, but I don't, like, I can't identify what what, what my blind spots are because they're blind spots, right? <laughs> if you knew what your blind spot was, it wouldn't be a blind spot anymore. So, so having Andy there uh, helped a lot in that, you know, I could say something and he'd say, well, what about this? I'm like, that's a really good point. We should address that. We should do something about it. Or he would suggest something and I'd be like, I didn't think of that. That's fantastic. So it it was really cool to collaborate with him on it, and then um, yeah, I mean just just a great process all around, and uh, we're hard at work on the second one. So it's it's continued to be to be fun. Um, you know, there really haven't been any power struggles or anything like that. Yeah. So the full title of the book, Prime: A Genesis Series Event. I'm hoping I hope I, I'm I'm reading that correctly. I just want to know, like, when I see a colon in a book title, the first thing I think about is it's either. Somebody says, "I need, I, I just, I need the second clause to like better explain this," or they're like, "Franchise baby, like Colin's gonna say, I got, I got five or six more coming." So I'm just curious, like, as you're naming the book, like, what is the thought process as you're trying to say, "All right, we don't want to go just prime. We need this kind of extra clause." Like, why go that route? And I don't mean that in a condescending way at all, or I'm not being snarky. This is like a legitimate question. Right. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I completely understand. So the, the reason we, um, we went that way is because we knew right from the beginning uh, we, we have a plan on uh, it's going to be a trilogy, and we know, like, we've already storyboarded out what each book is going to do. Right. So we knew right from the beginning that it was going to be a three-book series and that there was, there was a concrete thing we wanted to accomplish with each book. And so, you know, the, the first one was kind of the here's your introduction to this universe on kind of like a personal level. It's almost like a, you know, a tight end shot for, for a movie, right? You know, you, you really get the close in details, but you're not really seeing a lot of the broader picture. Then for the second one, we're going to 
we're going to zoom it out. We're going to expand it out to be like, okay, now you get to see more of how this society works, you know, how things are interacting on, on sort of more of a uh, civilizational scale. And also, you know, things that you thought you knew in the first book, after you read the second book, you can go back and look at it and be like, wow, that they were saying something completely different. And now I know what it was that, were, that they were saying, so now I really want to go back and reread the first book because my perception of this is, has been completely changed. And then with the third book, we want to do the same thing again. So it, to, to me, that's, that's the fun thing about stories, um, especially writing or, or you know, reading a multi-book uh, series, is that the really good ones, when you read the later books, it changes how you view the earlier books. And it because now you know more of the story. Now you know more of the motivations behind the characters, you know, or what's really going on. And and then you can go back and reread that initial story and get something completely new out of it, which I think is really really cool. Did you ever think like, screw this series, like let's just make one huge doorstop, let's do this thing? <laughs> well, the the problem is we could <laughs> do that. It just would not come out until like 2020, <laughs> <laughs> right? So you're in the far future you're creating. It's like when you finish it, you know? Right, 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 exactly. It's, uh, well, and then the other thing I was thinking, too, is like, yeah, we could make this big old doorstop, but the problem is the first thing they would say is, you know, we should cut this into three books. <laughs> like, you, you're not wrong. <laughs> um, I'm up late on Twitter, uh, and, I, and I see you post, this was a couple weeks ago, and I see you post something that's like, hey, I, I took some time and wrote, a backstory for this character for a game that I think is Path of Exile, The Awakening, because I clicked through and I started reading it. And I got to tell you, I didn't know anything about the game, any system, gaming systems, that would any gaming system it would have been played on, or even if you're like using a keyboard or like, you know, uh, sitting in a chair that like gyrates as you use it. Um, and I didn't know any of the characters, but I found it riveting. I like just, I like totally just tore through it to the end. And you wrote the hell out of it, man. It's a long, like it's a, it's a long piece like and you had you had them for multiple like there were links for multiple of the characters like how much fun do you have like exploring those worlds and and what's the what's the reaction been like because i know nothing nothing gets fans especially like gamers and like you know whether it's movies or entertainment like fans more possessive than established characters so do people like hit you up and say i I can't believe you took you made this choice or why'd you do this or were they just enthused you were given it a stab yeah, so, so the the reactions have been really great because um, I've actually been in contact with the um, the company that makes the game, uh, Grinding Your Games, and so like their head writer, like we we correspond by email where I'll send him you know a draft of this and be like, hey, based on your guys' internal lore, like does this make sense? Does this work in your universe? And then he'll send back like, you know, hey, this part works. This part needs to be tweaked a little bit to you know to fit in with this, and so. That then when I post the stories, you know, people know that, hey, this, this isn't necessarily established game lore, but it's done with the knowledge of the game creators. So there's nothing that's going to be out of place. And the, you know, the people who read it are people who are obviously very vested, generally very vested in the game. And so they, they really liked reading it because, you know, it, it fills in those gaps. It fills in those areas where there are stories waiting to be told. And, um, you know, uh, I, I don't, like, I don't want to seem arrogant or bad or anything, but, you know, generally when you hear fan fiction, you think a certain level of quality, and <laughs> it's usually not great. And so that was one of the other things I wanted to do is, you know, I'm like, I, I treat this just like anything else I write, and that I want to write it to the best of my ability, which, you know, I'm, I'm going to take my time and, and make sure that I'm happy with the results. 
And so, you know, especially for something like fan fiction wise, I, I'm hoping that it's a step up in quality as opposed to, you know, what you normally get, which is something along the lines of like essentially almost a wish fulfillment thing or something like that, which generally not a great story. Um, you know, I, I know why people write them, but at the end of the day, it's, it, you know, what are you really saying? Are you, you know, are you, are you telling a, a good story or are you just trying to, you know, sort of make yourself the hero in, in place of, you know, one of these characters? What other options did you consider when you used heaving breasts in one of the one of the pieces? <laughs> um, there's swelling bosoms. Um, there's a <laughs> good, good. So I'm actually also trying to keep these fairly PG. Yeah, um, right. I think there there's like one or two. I don't actually. I don't know if I put a swear word in there yet. I think I've alluded to a couple swear words, but um, so like that's one of the other things is that when I write, I try to tailor it to um, to the audience and to the environment, and so. You know, a piece that I write for Deadspin is going to be different than a piece I write for, like, you know, the, the Path of Exile community. Board yeah, Because right. the Deadspin audience expects, you know, not expects, but they're used to a certain style of writing. They're used to a certain way of, you know, of interacting with each other. Whereas if I take that same writing style and, and put that into what is supposed to be like a, you know, serious backstory for a character, yeah, some people are going to laugh, but it doesn't fit. You know, you and, and I think as a writer, that's something you always have to be aware of is, who are you writing for? I mean, well, and, and I know for me, first and foremost, it's, again, probably selfish, but I write for myself. Like, I, I, I write things that I want to read. Um, and then I try to make it, okay, who else is going to read this? And what's the most effective way that I can address them? You know, what, what's the most effective way that I can get my message to them in a way that they will retain? Yeah, you're right. Deadspin, Big Daddy Drew is not writing heaving breasts. So I appreciate your restraint, and I'm sure the community right. does too. Hey, so I know you got to go. So the last thing we do uh, for everyone we interview, um, you know, we know athletes like yourself have to always take those annoying aptitude tests at the um, at the combine. You're like the wonderlick. So we created the Just Not Sports Wonderlike, where we ask you five questions about what you like. In this case, it's athletes attempting to write. Do you think it's a speed round? Do you think you've got what it takes to get all five? I have no idea, but I'm sure we'll find out. All right. So remember, this is athletes attempting to write. So question one, what NBA player famously said he was misquoted in his own 1991 autobiography, Outrageous? Uh, is that Charles Barkley? That is Charles Barkley. I don't have a ding, ding, ding or anything, so <laughs> I would be banging it, though. That's that's very good. Very good. Yeah, he, he claimed he yeah, didn't even read it. So, so let <laughs> Yeah, let me let me butt in real quick. I'm horrible with like actual athletes and knowing who they are because I don't really watch sports. So most of these are going to be educated guesses. Hey, but you're one for one, so um, I, I'm I'm already impressed. So number two, you have you you heard of the of Jim Bouton's Ball Four, correct? Yeah, that's the baseball book where kind of a tell-all um, expose, almost like yeah. very candid. Yeah. Absolutely. Back in the 60s and early 70s, um, Bhutan sort of, you know, peeked behind the curtain of Major League Baseball and kind of told it all. After it came out, what opposing player sat in the dugout on the other side of the field and spent the entire game yelling at Jim, F you, Shakespeare? <laughs> no idea. But well done to that person. Just That's a level of commitment you don't really see these days. Pete Rose. Pete Rose. It, it, no one should be shocked that it's Pete Rose. Yep, that's, uh, well, I'm sure if he talked about Pete Rose and some of the things he was doing, uh, he probably wasn't too happy about it. <laughs> I think Pete Rose just wanted to keep that curtain nicely shut and baseball players get away with whatever they're going to do. Um, all right, quickly, number three, 
In his book, A View from Above, Wilt Chamberlain claimed he slept with a lot of women. A lot of women. Over or under? Did he say over or under 10,000 women? Oh, I know this one. It's over. Didn't he say it was like 20,000 or something like that? He, he said it's 20,000. You know, for someone who says they don't watch sports, you know a lot about how many people Wilt Chamberlain had sex with, Chris. Well, it's, it's, it's been re- referenced on, you know, uh, <laughs> yeah. I think it's been referenced a couple times, you know, the other stories. So, yeah, occasionally something seeps through, you know, learned by osmosis. <laughs> yeah, right. And, and somebody calculated it. was It's like 2.3 women a day or something during his playing career. It's like an absolutely outrageous <laughs> number. Um, number four, two, just two left. What athlete appeared naked on the cover of his book, Bad As I Wanted to Wanna Be, and showed up to his book signing wearing a wedding dress? Pretty sure that's Dennis Rodman. That is Dennis Rodman. Three for four, man. You're killing this. You're killing this. Final one. O.J. Simpson's 2006 must-read. No, I'm kidding. I didn't come near it. Um, about the murders had its cover altered to better hide what word that was in the title. So the the the, the, the cover existed, and then they hid one word. What was it? Uh, well, I know the title was If I Did It. Um, did they... Do it to cover if, so it said I did it. That is right. That is right. Four for five. They covered <laughs> after it was, I think it was after it was claimed by the estate of the victims, they didn't want to make any doubt. It was like, yeah, dude, this is a confession. So, OJ, if you're listening and you want to come on and talk about your writing process too, anytime, buddy. Well, <laughs> Chris, we, we can't thank you enough for coming on. You're such a great interview, and you're such a great sport for sort of being so candid and, and it really insightful about your own process. I want to tell people they can pick up your, your two books, you know, Beautiful, Unique, Sparkle Ponies, uh, On Myths, Morons, Free Speech, Football, and Assorted Absurdities. Uh, I, I've, I've read it. I love it. It's, it's, it's very good. Um, and then there's also Prime, a Genesis series event, your new um, fantasy, sci-fi, futuristic novel. Um, more to come there, more in that series. And um, I just want to tell people to follow you at Chris Warcraft. And, uh, again, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, you're one of our all-time favorites, so we really appreciate it. Yeah, yeah, no, thank, thank you for having me on. I had a blast, and uh, they were great topics of conversation. We'll take a quick break. We'll be right back. Today's episode of Just Not Sports is sponsored by TheHeckler.com. You know, Adam and I work in Chicago, and The Heckler is definitely a must-read during our workday. This is a site that's all about life as an American sports fan. You know, there's really funny satire stories as well as real sports news and commentary posted every day. And the site also offers a ton of really great group road trips to see Chicago teams like the Cubs, Bears, Blackhawks, and more. That's just such a great way to catch a game with a really, really fun group of people, guys. The Heckler also has an awesome online store where you can buy really great merchandise. They've got sweatshirts, mugs, koozies, and just a freaking ton of really hilarious t-shirts, not just about sports, but also about stuff like St. Patty's Day, college, video games, and more. Anyway, we love The Heckler. We're super appreciative for them for being our first sponsor of the show. So please go check it out. Browse the store. Read some funny articles while you're there. Theheckler.com. So I have a daughter. She's two years old, and we signed her up for something called Little Kickers, which is a soccer kickers program. And she hated it. She hated it more than life itself. She ran out of the gym. She yelled at the coaches. Um, The last straw was when she laid down in a goal pretending to take a nap, which if anyone who has young kids know, the last thing in the world a kid wants to do is take a nap. So clearly, at that point, we were out on little kickers. 
And I, it was proof that there are plenty of dads who are more devoted to their kids' athletic careers than me. And sometimes those dads just happen to be rappers. And sometimes those rappers just happen to have the letter P for a name, Adam. That's right. Master P, <laughs> Master P and Sean P. Diddy Combs both spawned kids who played college sports, Division I college sports, both in the Pac-12. So today, because of all the similarities... We're pitting them against each other in a game of one-on-one to see who's the better sports dad. Adam, when it comes to sports dads, which P do you got? Who would you like to start with? I can tell you you a couple of tales. Let's go in. I feel like we should go in to Master P first because for whatever reason, I feel like he was the one that I I was more conscious of being a sports dad than, than Sean. Right, I agree. Uh, so probably part of the reason you think that is because, as we may have discussed already, rapper Master P uh, had a couple short stints in the NBA um, in the preseason for a couple years. He also infamously represented running back Ricky Williams, uh, in which he structured his initial NFL contract with enough escalators in it that Ricky Williams would have had to essentially break every NFL rushing record in order to make a decent living. So although he got out of sports business officially, he was able to get back into it through his son, who you may know uh, as Little Romeo, birth name uh, Percy Romeo Miller Jr., um, but officially uh, dubbed Little Romeo by his dad and given a rap career and also an athletic career. So most of you, what most of you may not remember, and with good reason, is that Little Romeo played at the University of Southern California basketball. Uh, He was recruited um, along with his high school teammate, now Toronto Raptors star, DeMar DeRozan. They were teammates? They were teammates in high school. Uh, DeMar DeRozan was one of the top 10 ranked players in the country, Uh, Little Romeo was not. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Well, that's what makes this story kind of sad. There's a good chance that Little Romeo could have earned uh, Division I or Division II scholarship on his own. Um, But his father kind of manipulated the process. So the story goes that... uh, during commitment season, Master P, while driving both his son and DeMar Rosen from a tournament in Fayetteville, Arkansas, called then our uh, USC head coach Tim Floyd uh, and said, DeMar and Romeo are ready to make their decision, and would you like to have both of them on scholarship? And Tim Floyd, uh, with the opportunity to get one of the best players in the country, DeMar DeRozan, that is, said, Absolutely. Um, And Tim Floyd would never admit that he let uh, Little Romeo onto the team to get DeMar DeRozan, but we all suspect that was probably the case. So, Brad, this reminds me of uh, growing up in Denver when the Avalanche were uh, particularly hot. The law said that you can't sell a ticket for more than face value. But you can sell an accompanying item for as much as you want. So a scalper would sell a ticket for 
face value, let's say $150, and then would sell you an avalanche hat for $500. In this story, DeMar DeRozan is the ticket, Little Romeo is the hat. (laughs) He would go on to play just 19 minutes in two years at USC, leaving the university uh, and going on to record more studio albums, um, a mildly successful acting and modeling career as well. So, again, this is not to uh, indict Little Romeo because certainly he loved basketball, was a decent player. Was he a USC-caliber athlete? Probably not. Yeah, I mean, here's the thing. I think this is a strike against Master P, right? Because if if DeMar DeRozan is the is the you know the the carrot or i guess if little if little romeo is the carrot you're dangling to sort of get demar derozan there you're ignoring the fact that he's got a famous rapper father like that in itself should be the incentive that you need right to recruit this kid just so he sits on the on, on court side and like is there around the program yeah although i would argue that uh by the time he was a freshman which was 2007 2008 probably his uh, masterpiece pop culture or popularity um, fame had, had fizzled out at that point. Um, but he was able to use DeMar DeRozan, who has gone on to quite an NBA career, to get his son into school. Well, okay, so going back to Master P versus P. Diddy, because all that's great context, so here's what I have to ask. Knowing that, knowing that you know, Master P was sort of overlooked in this recruiting process, is P. Diddy the superior athletic dad? I mean, he's is he the one that you'd rather have sitting courtside? P. Diddy versus Master P. It's P. Diddy, no question, right? You mean in terms of who do you want who's going to sell yeah. tickets for your program? Yeah, right. Who's the yeah. more attractive guy? Yeah. He might even dance at halftime. Master P don't dance. Well, I can't name... Can you name two Master P songs? Make him say, uh? Okay, yeah. yeah. Oh, yes, Adam. Way to pull that one out of nowhere. And then what is the second uh, one? Um... I can't, and I used to own several of his albums, and I can't do it. Right. His his music has uh, not aged. I, I probably name more songs by his brother, Silk the Shocker. Silk the Shocker. His brother's name Silk the Shocker. You forgot about, how did you forget about Silk the Shocker? Come on. That's a rap family. Master P, Silk the Shocker, Little Romeo. That's a dynasty. That is that's the worst dynasty since like the Brett Favre Packers that got to the Super Bowl twice and won once. The Whoa. Oh yeah. Whoa. Shots fired. Okay, that's sports. There. We're not going we're not going there. Let's get into the other P here, P. Diddy. He's got a kid who played football or plays football at UCLA, is that correct? He is a red shirt junior, his son Justin, special teams and defensive back for the Bruins. Um, but his work ethic has been questioned, um, and Diddy took exception to this, showed up uh, at the team facility for a workout, uh, and reportedly had an altercation with strength coach Sal Alosi, um, in which he used, uh, there was an initial fight broken up, Diddy was detained, it would seem, to a, another area of campus, uh, and in this area, Diddy decided to use a kettlebell. Brad, you're familiar with the, what a kettlebell looks like and what it's used for, correct? Uh, sure. Everybody is, right? It's, it's like a dumbbell. It's, uh, so basically he picked up a weight and 
tried to swing it at one of the interns nearby. Um, allegedly, all arrest- allegedly. <laughs> well, allegedly, but enough to be arrested for it and to have uh, his bail set at $160,000. He eventually was cleared of all criminal charges, um, but did defend his actions, um, saying that you have to be able to take a lot. As a comb, as a combs, my sons have to be able to take a lot. You can't have no soft skin. Well, real quick, real quick, how do you think he paid? How do you think he paid for his his bail? Do you think it was like cash, or maybe like just he just dumped out like gold wallet like clips and was just like, here you go, <laughs> gold bouillon. I, I, uh, mo money, mo problems. So, uh, except it does get you out of jail. What do you who what do you have more respect for the helicopter dad who's willing to fight for his kid or Master P who played in the league? Uh, I'm going to go with Master P on this one. I have more respect for him. Was he a bit manipulative to get his son into USC? Yes. Did he uh, potentially face jail time for what he did? No. No, he didn't. Yeah, this one's a tough one for me. I'm going to go. It's tough. Really? I'm going to go Master P, man. Um Master P is the worst or best? best. I don't, I'm a, just, I'm a, don't I'm I'm going I'm I'm voting for Master P because what I don't like is I don't like assaulting a coach because you're upset about something that happens to your kid. Um just don't go there. I you know, Puffy, excuse me, Diddy, um alleged alleged Diddy, uh I just, you know, I can't I can't I can't support you, man. Ease up. Yeah. All I right. agree. You know what, Adam? Enough about these guys. I think we covered it. We're, Master P, you're the you're the winner of our first ever one-on-one showdown, uh, Helicopter Sports Fathers. That's our show for today. I want to thank everybody for downloading, listening, subscribing, rating, and reviewing at iTunes. Remember to search Just Not Sports. Uh, you can check us out on our website, www.justnotsports.com. We're also on Twitter, at Just Not Sports. Please feel free to email us ideas, show tips, um, interesting things you're seeing athletes doing online. We're justnotsports at gmail.com. For now, thank you so much. Well,